The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 61, to the chief musician on a stringed instrument, a psalm of David. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings, Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. All right. We've got a sermon which is a little bit complicated. If you've never heard this before, you might want to go back and watch it a couple times. You might want to think on it, get a written copy of the sermon and read it, and it'll help you to process what we're going to talk about. Normally when I do this particular uh, talk, I do it on the blackboard, and I can show you how this works kind of in a, uh, you'll get a mental image of what's going on, which you won't have before you today. And so you may have to go back and just reread or rewatch the sermon a couple times. But... This is entitled, God's Predestination and Election in Christ. Exodus 9, 13 through 16 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart, and on your servants and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. In our last sermon, we looked into the doctrine of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone. This, as we saw, does not mean that we must first make Christ, Lord of our lives. That's MacArthur's Lordship Salvation. Logically, that cannot happen until one is saved. It is faulty logic based on a faulty premise. We also cannot logically repent of our sin prior to our conversion in the way that Ray Comfort of the Way of the Master presents. It is true we are sinful beings and we need a Savior, but to repent of sins, as Ray Comfort says, then implies that we know all of that which is considered sinful, turning from all of that, and only then can we be saved. This, too, is faulty logic. We turn from sin as we discover that which is displeasing to God, and that comes from discipleship, not calling on Christ by faith to receive the gift of salvation which God offers in him. Both of these teachings were shown to be faulty because they present a faulty view of the simple gospel, salvation by faith alone, through grace alone. But what is the process provided by God that even gets us to that point? And once we arrive at that point, what are the results of the act of that salvation which God provides? 
These doctrines, those of predestination, election, and that of security of the believer are major doctrines. Today we will look at predestination and election. Next week we will look at the security of the believer. However, these are not separate in the mind of God, as we will see today, and as we saw when we did the first sermon on the sovereignty of God. Each point of doctrine leads logically and absolutely to the next because of the very nature of God. That they are combined is seen in the words of Paul to the Romans in a single verse, which is Romans 8 verse 30. But for more context, we will give you both verses 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he has justified, these he also glorified. Paul speaks of being foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, all in just two verses. Each of these five verbs is in the same tense, aorist, indicative, active. In essence, the act is defined at a particular moment, it is past, and its effects are ongoing. Today, we will look at some of the mechanics of what this means for the individual who is to be saved by God through Jesus Christ. Be advised, though, that no matter what is said in the next few minutes, another 10 volumes of commentary could be added to each point. And there would still be someone who says, but you didn't cover this verse from Romans, or why didn't you mention that particular point? The study is vast, and it takes a lifetime of pursuit. So please don't think that every I has been crossed or every T has been dotted. Wait, reverse that, please. This is just a short talk to hopefully encourage you to desire more because there's ever so much more to be desired in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've only got one long thought for you today. It is God's predestination and election in Christ. Paul says that believers are predestined and they are called. The Greek word proarizo is translated as predestined and it means to mark out beforehand. It comes from the preposition pro, meaning before, in front of, and so on, just as it does in the English, and also the verb horizo, meaning to mark off by boundaries or determine. You can see the English word horizon in it. One might think of pre-horizon or predetermined. God has predetermined those who will be saved. But what does that mean? Did God actively choose each before creation, as in, I will make a Charlie Garrett and I will save him? And if this is so, does he then say, I will make a Joseph Stalin and I will condemn him? Or does God say, I will make a path to salvation? This is the predetermined boundary, and any who accept that path will be saved. Or is there some variation between these that God will use to save man? One thing is for sure. Paul says believers are predestined, and so there is no reason to argue if this is true or not. What needs to be established is what that actually means and how it comes about. The importance of why this needs to be known translates directly into the nature of God, his love, his competence, his trustworthiness, and so forth. It also translates directly into what believers need to do in salvation and even after salvation, both in regard to his salvation and in regard to his obligation to others for their salvation. 
In order to understand at least a small part of predestination and election, we will go over various views on what is involved in them. To do this, we will repeat points which have already been covered in earlier sermons in the books of Moses and in several Bible studies that some of you have already attended or have watched. However, as this is a series on doctrine, the repetition is necessary and it will hopefully be a good refresher for those of you who have already heard these things before. I'm also going to add in a few things that I have not said in the past before as well. So no napping and sit up straight. Paul's words of Romans 8, 29, and 30, which was our text verse, are a result of his statement in 8:28 about all things being worked out for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. Based on this, he says that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those who are a part of God's plans and purposes will be conformed. It is already done in God's mind. How does this come about? Four main views will be presented. Supralapsarianism, infralapsarianism, sublapsarianism, and Wesleyanism. Despite being mentally challenging and a bit complicated, we can simplify the big words for your mind by using easier examples for you to grasp. In the past, I have used ducks in a pond, which then flows into a river. That was so that people wouldn't quack their heads from thinking too hard. Today, we're going to use real people who are stuck in the same dilemma. The wrong views will be explained first, who believes them, and why. The first wrong view is known as supralapsarianism. Supra means above. It says that election or predestination is logically prior to the decree to permit the fall of man. In other words, even before sin entered into the picture, election was made for all people. The big word is more easily understood from its parts. Supra is above, lapse means the fall. There's a lapse, and ism is a doctrine, supralapsarianism. This is the doctrine of before the fall. This view involves a group known as hyper-Calvinists. It is also known as double predestination because its effects go actively in two directions. It is radical and biblically unsound. It inevitably leads to judgmental egoists who feel God loves them and hates everybody else. The reason for this is because their assumption is that God predestined humanity before he permitted the fall of man. Therefore, he actively elected some for salvation and actively elected others for condemnation. The fall hasn't even happened and God has made his choice. In his act of creation, he purposefully created with the intent that his people would either be saved or they would be condemned. That is their state, and they have no choice in the matter. This means that God provides and he applies salvation only for the elect. This is known as limited atonement. Christ's atonement is limited only to those who are elected, and it applies both potentially and actually only to certain people. Another term must be applied to those who are saved and those who are condemned. These are my terms. Forced salvation to the one and purposeful condemnation to the other. To explain, we can look at the Garden of Eden where God placed man. God created both the garden and he created the man. The man was placed into the garden and even before the man has done anything wrong, God has already chosen which of his descendants he will love and which he will hate. Only after this decision, this one man and his wife disobey. 
In this, the catastrophe of sin entered into the realm. Man was forced from the garden into a stream of existence, one generation leading to the next. However, that stream leads away from the garden to the abyss of hell, complete, total, and eternal separation from God. But during the course of time, God actively comes along and initiates a process of salvation for those that he chose to save even before any wrong had been committed. He gives them his spirit, and he seals them for future glory, whether they want it or not. The choice was made even before the fall, and they were saved at that point in time. The work of Jesus may be a part of this process, but it is actually an afterthought in the stream of events. And the ones he created for condemnation... He actively withholds his saving of them, forcing them into condemnation and hell because he chose them to be created for condemnation. This is a mean and an angry God who actively hates some of his creation, the non-elect, even before he created them. If you think about it, for those who espouse this doctrine, there is absolutely no reason at all to evangelize anyone. Why bother telling anyone about Jesus or sending out missionaries? God has chosen, and that is that. And more, why go to church? Why read your Bible? If you are elect, there's nothing needed by you in regard to that nonsense. So you might as well just live it up, elect, okay? It ascribes evil to God because that evil that exists is not attempted to be corrected by him when he could have corrected it on the process of redemption, even by those who may have desired to have it corrected. This view, double predestination, was held by the first Calvinist. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, chapter 21, section 5, he states the following, All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of these ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or to death. Such is the view of the first Calvinist. And it is a heretical view of what God is doing in the stream of human existence. The second incorrect view is infralapsarianism. Infra meaning below. This concept says that the decree of election, meaning to call someone to salvation, is logically after the decree to permit the fall. This is held by strong Calvinists, but it is technically not double predestination. In essence, God created all, and then he permitted the fall of man. Since then, he has and he will continue to elect some, but he will pass by others. He provides and applies salvation only for the elect, he chooses who will be saved, and they have no choice in the matter. Traditional Calvinists such as R.C. Sproul, John Piper, and others are in this category. This view still holds to limited atonement, like the first view. Christ's atonement is limited only to those who are elected, and it applies, both potentially and actually, only to certain people who will be saved. To the saved, it is forced salvation, and to the unsaved, we could use the term uncaring condemnation. We'll go back to the Garden of Eden to understand. God creates the garden and the man. After this, man disobeyed, and the catastrophe of sin entered into the realm. It is at this time that God decides who he will save and who he will simply ignore. In the meantime, man is forced from the garden into a stream of existence, one generation leading to the next. 
but that stream leads away from the garden to the abyss of hell, complete and total separation from God. During this course of time, God actively comes along and initiates a process of salvation for some of these people. He gives them his spirit and he seals them for future glory, whether they want it or not. The rest, he simply ignores. He does nothing to secure their salvation. They were simply not a part of his plan. Now, one might argue that this isn't a hateful God, but that is incorrect. He is uncaring about those he did not elect, and to not care about their eternal state is an unloving act. He made the choice for salvation or condemnation after the fall, but he also did so before he actually took any action to correct the matter. Thus, the cross is an afterthought in God's redemptive plans and purposes. In his mind, they were saved before his decree to correct their state. Like the first view, the work of Jesus may be a part of this process, but it is actually a secondary thought in the stream of events. There is an implicit problem with this view, which brings it to the same level as the first view. God is all-knowing. The order of the occurrences, as I am presenting them, are for our benefit and our understanding. But they are not actually how God's mind sees things. He knows all things at all times. To state that God didn't actually create some for salvation and some for condemnation in this view would be a hard sell. In both views so far, God loves only the elect in terms of salvation. The others he actively hates or he simply doesn't care about them, which is by default a hateful act. Another problem with this is that God is love. That is stated explicitly by the pen of John in the book of 1 John. God is love. He loves everyone equally. He does not love Charlie Garrett more than he loves Adolf Hitler. He loves everyone the same. God is love. There is no increase or decrease in his love for us from his perspective. The Bible proclaims this. But to pass over some while choosing others, especially after providing the means of salvation to the world, is actually no different than actively condemning them. Both views present an unloving God towards the non-elect. This passing by someone, when he knew before creating them that he would pass them by, is actually more than uncaring. It shows a disdain for a certain portion of his creatures. Calvinists like to say that those who are not elect are simply not a part of his plan. And that may be true, but it is he, not the poor soul who might want to be, who determines it is so. In order to justify this, many verses have to be taken out of context, and entire doctrines which are in fact taught in Scripture, such as free will, have to be dismissed. By denying free will in the process of salvation, Calvinists then supposedly remove this stain from God as they view him. Like in the first view, there's no reason why someone would bother telling anyone about Jesus Christ or sending out missionaries. They will dispute this, but it is the logical result of such a view. If God chooses us for salvation apart from our will, and even before he initiated the plan for man's salvation, then honestly, what is the point? Are God's plans going to be thwarted by us somehow? Jim, why do we go to the mission field every single Saturday? Why do we do that? Because God's plans can't be thwarted, so why bother? That's the view that is being presented here. Further, proponents of this faulty view would then say that if it is intended for all to be saved, then all would be saved, because God's sovereign intentions must come about. God is, after all, sovereign, as we saw in our first doctrine sermon. 
Therefore, if it was not intended for all to be saved, then it was only intended for some, meaning the elect. This is a fallacy of thinking known as a false dilemma. The atonement of Jesus is an offering, and it is intended to save all, but it only applies salvation for those who believe. As 2 Peter 3 verse 9 states explicitly, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Calvinism wrongly assumes and therefore asserts that the atonement of Jesus Christ has only one purpose, which is to secure salvation for the elect. In other words, Jesus died so that we can be saved. This is incorrect. It can be inferred that Jesus' sacrifice, according to Romans 1, verse 32, has another purpose, to reveal the righteousness of God in judgment. God sends his son to die in your place, but you turn him down. Even without the cross of Jesus Christ, we are condemned. That's John 3:18. How much more just is God in judgment because of the cross? The result of the idea of limited atonement is that it denies that God really desires all people to be saved. This is contrary to his omnibenevolence, and it is also contrary to what Peter wrote, as inspired by God, in which God included in his infallible word. To understand this view more clearly, one needs to consider the concept of free will. Do we freely choose Jesus Christ, or does God choose us apart from our will? The two options are known as monergism. You see the word mono at the beginning, and ergism would be the work, a work, a single work, or synergism. Monergism, or unconditional election, teaches that regeneration is completely the result of God's work, and man has no part or cooperation in it. It is salvation by irresistible grace, leading to regeneration, and then to faith. In other words, if thought through logically, a person is saved before he is saved. This is in accord with the two models that we have already discussed, supra- and infralapsarianism. To justify this, Calvinist doctrine says that one is born again by the Spirit. After that occurs, they then choose Jesus Christ, and then they are saved. In other words, being born again is not salvation, but rather an intermediate step on the road to salvation. One could paraphrase that by saying, nobody has free will unto salvation, but God chooses a person to be saved, gives them free will to choose through regeneration, being born again, and then he uses that free will of choice to be saved. But if they have free will to choose after being born again, and they cannot use it to reject Jesus Christ, then it really isn't free will. Rather, it is forced will. Calvinism is convoluted, and it involves very unclear thinking and a twisting of the Bible. Further, this view actually usurps God. If you have no choice in your salvation, I would like to ask you, how do you know that you are saved? How can anyone make a claim that they are saved when they didn't have anything to do with their salvation? In other words, you are speaking for God by claiming salvation at all. Of course, an answer might be, I believed after regeneration, therefore, I am saved. However, there are false gospels, and people believe them. They do it all the time. We know lots of people that know false gospels, and they accept them. There are people who believe wrongly, and yet claim that they are saved. When they find out that they're wrong, they change their belief, hopefully, in order to be saved. 
So when were they saved? When they believed correctly. But Calvinism says that they were saved by God's predetermined will even before they were created. So why did they go through the times of falsely believing that they were saved? What exactly was God doing with them at that time? If he wasn't doing something with them at that time, then they had to freely choose to do what they were doing. Hence, they had free will in the matter. False gospels imply that there is a true gospel, and the spirit of the Antichrist implies that there is a true spirit. Belief must precede regeneration, and it does. This is what the Bible teaches. Your faith brings salvation. Finally, monergism denies free will in fallen man, but free will is necessary for love because forced love is not love at all. And if you are forced to will, then you are not freely loving. Synergism, or conditional election, on the other hand, teaches that we freely choose Jesus Christ and then we are regenerated to life. This is exactly what the Bible teaches numerous times, both by Jesus' words as well as the apostolic writings. First from Jesus. You all know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If he gave something, it is a gift. If he forced it on you, it is not a gift. He gave, you received the gift, you believe, and you are saved. Also from Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. An argument against this, though, is that the Bible says we are dead in our sins and that it is Jesus who restores us to life. The argument is, how can a dead person choose life? R.C. Sproul, who ironically is now dead, basically says it this way. You have as much power to awaken yourself from spiritual death as a corpse has the power to awaken himself from physical death. This is a fallacy or an error in thinking known as a category mistake. We are spiritually dead beings. The Bible teaches that. We are not dead beings. God made us with the ability to reason, to choose, and to decline. In fact, this is exactly what Genesis 3 verse 22 implies. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever, dot, dot, dot. Just because we are totally depraved beings, incapable of saving ourselves, it does not mean that we cannot see the good and receive it. People always strive towards what they perceive as good. Even if it's bad, they think it's good, they're going to strive for it. And this is what Jesus came to do, to lead us as a beacon back to God. As he said himself, John 12, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Christ is the beacon and man comes to God through him. Nobody, and I mean nobody in his right mind who has read the Bible accurately, assumes that he can restore himself to life. Only Christ can do that. He has done all that we need for that to happen. We simply receive it, and he accomplishes the rest. 
Peter speaks of this synergistic model in 1 Peter chapter 3. Here's what he says. There is also an antitype which now saves us baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There he uses the word synodesis, translated as conscience. It is a compound of syn, meaning together with, and ido, meaning to know or to see. It provides a look into the idea of synergism. It is a word used frequently by Paul that signifies joint knowing. In other words, this is now the helps word studies meaning definition of this word. Conscience, which joins moral and spiritual consciousness as a part of being created in the divine image. Accordingly, all people have this God-given capacity to know right from wrong, just as we saw in Genesis 3.22, because each is a free moral agent. Peter says that man uses this God-given capacity, acknowledges what God has done through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he is saved. As man is a free moral agent, and as his conscience must work out an acceptable faith in the work of Christ, a work which culminated in the resurrection, then it shows that man is not regenerated in order to believe, as Calvinism wrongly states. Rather, man's free will must actively reason out his state before God, see that he is lost in a world of filth, meaning moral unrighteousness, and come into the ark of safety, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ, and thus be saved. The faith in Christ leads to the baptism, which is the demand or the question by which God answers. Am I right before God? The answer is yes. It is Christ who allows this to occur. Mixing categories and rejecting core doctrines of the Bible, as Calvinism does, leads to bad theology, such as monergism. To understand the doctrine of free will better, I'd like you to go back and watch our Genesis 2 sermon entitled, Free to Will or Not Free to Will. The Bible teaches what we would call anthropological hylomorphism. We are a soul-body unity. The spirit of man is dead, but the spirit of man is tied to the soul. Paul, speaking to saved believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, says that the soul without a body is naked. The spirit of man is made alive when we call on Christ, even if the body later dies. This is eternal life, and it occurs the moment that we believe. We don't become a soul-body-spirit unity. Rather, it is our soul which is now spiritually alive. Adam's spirit died at the fall. Faith in Christ regenerates that spirit. As I said, the spirit of Antichrist, which John speaks of, confirms this. This is the error of Calvinist thinking. The spirit is not a separate entity. It is a reconnection of the soul to God. The third wrong concept of our four major categories is Wesleyanism, named after John Wesley. Jacob Presch, who we mentioned in a previous sermon, is a proponent of this faulty view. It says that God's election is based on his foreknowledge but not necessarily in accord with it. In other words, God's decrees are conditional. He changes his mind. That's why we did the sovereignty of God first in this series of doctrine, is because we needed to understand the nature of what God is doing. This is the beginning of major error, and it goes back to a guy named Jacob Arminius who lived in the 1500s. His view denies eternal security. It reveals a God who is changing and who makes mistakes. John Wesley could not decide what was right, and so he followed the teaching of Jacob Arminius 
after asking God for a sign and then throwing lots twice. The lots came up and he said, okay, I'm an Arminianist, but we don't get our theology from happenstance and chance. Instead, we get it from the Bible. John Wesley, the Methodists, the Church of God, Mennonites, and others who hold this view are wrong, frightfully wrong. Like the previous view, they believe that God created all and then he permitted the fall. Then he provides salvation for all people. God knows who the elect are based on the foreseen faith of those who believe. Because of this faith, he applies salvation only to believers, but believers can lose their salvation. Going back to the Garden of Eden for an example, God creates the garden and the man. The man disobeys God and the catastrophe of sin enters into the realm. Man is forced from the garden into a stream of existence, one generation leading to the next. However, that stream leads away from the garden to the abyss of hell, complete and total separation from God. God, however, offers the corrective measure for man. He sends his son to die for their sin. The son calls out, come to me and be saved. Some never hear the message and they continue through life without Christ. Some respond and come to him. Others like the existence that they are living and they have no care about what their end will be or they simply fail to believe what they hear and they reject what God has offered. For those who come to his son, however, they can never know if they have upset God enough for him to take away the salvation that he has provided. They must keep doing things or not doing things in order to continue to be saved. If they fail in the doing or not doing, God removes his salvation from them and they are returned to the highway of hell. There is never true safety and in fact, those who are saved can't really tell if they are saved or not from day to day. They spend their entire life trying to please a group of lower level pastors, preachers, and scholars who carefully decide what constitutes acceptance or rejection. When God says in the book of Hebrews that those who believe have entered God's rest, that is a conditional statement. When God says in the book of Ephesians that the seal of his Holy Spirit is a guarantee, it is so in name only. But a guarantee in name is not a guarantee at all. In this, God and what he says in his word cannot be trusted. Where Jesus says that hearing his word and believing in him who sent him results in one everlasting life, two, that they will not come into judgment, and three, that they have passed from death to life does not really mean that. Jesus' words are not to be taken at face value, but rather they are conditional statements. As this is so, one must earn his salvation. And thus salvation is not by grace through faith. This is a failed system of deceit, which comes from a God who vacillates and who changes. His decrees are conditional. Understanding this, we can make a simple and logical refutation of Wesleyanism. First, there is actually no chronological order in the decrees of God. We put them in an understandable order for our benefit, but in God, there is no chronology. Now, I'll explain that before I go on. God created time, space, and matter. Everybody got that? That was proven by the theory of relativity. Einstein showed that time cannot exist without space and matter. Space cannot exist without time and matter. And matter cannot exist without space and time. Okay? They are all connected and they are all one. Exactly as the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It all came into existence at one moment. That means that God is outside of time. He is before time, and in God there is no time. God doesn't think 
dicursively. Oh, gee, there's a painting. Oh, look at the roof needs to be fixed. Um, oh, Charlie's ugly. That's dicursive thinking. One thought going to another. He does not think syllogistically. This is black. This is hard and it's shaped funny and it's connected to a piece of brass. That must be a bell. I'm making a logical conclusion based on a thought process. Both of those happen in time. God is not in time. When he thinks something, it is forever. It is a thought which is unconditional. He does not think in time or sequence. Rather, God knows everything immediately and intuitively. All thoughts in God are simultaneous, and so chronological thinking is therefore excluded. However, there is an operational order in what God has done. He has willed all things to occur in the temporal sequence of time. One thing happens and then another. We know that God created first. Only after the creation came the fall of man. Only after the fall did God then begin to explain his plan of redemption. That plan slowly unfolded in the stream of time. In this, we can think of a person who gets sick. Once sick, a plan is made to bring him back to health. The doctor writes out a prescription, and if the man follows what is prescribed, he will get well. But this plan is unfolded for our benefit. What God has decreed is eternal. Here's a quote from Norman Geisler, the founder of the seminary I attended. All of God's attributes, thoughts, and decisions are eternal in accord with one another, and none is logically dependent or independent of another. If it were, there would be contradictory logical sequence in a God who has no multiplicity, not even in his thoughts. God provides salvation. Man accepts the prescription which has been filled out for him. The man is saved. The man is sealed with the Holy Spirit. The salvation is eternal. Each decree is eternal. None is taken out of the whole, but is in accord with the whole, and the man is saved. That corresponds wholly and accurately to the words of Paul of Romans 8, 29, and 30, which was our text verse today. Let me read it to you again so that you know what I'm talking about. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Our final view is what is correct. First, it makes sense from a philosophic standpoint. Second, it makes sense from a moral standpoint. And third, it is the only view which is supported by the Bible. It also answers the question of why we fell in the first place. Further, it answers where evil came from without ever ascribing it to God. Without this view, one is forever searching for where evil came from. This is the question the Calvinists must and do ask. They can never find an answer to it because their theology leaves no room for it. Their mistaken idea is that God created everything perfect, and so if man fell, then God must have blown it by creating a being that could fall. This is especially true because if intent to sin is evil, as Jesus clearly says that it is, then Adam fell before the fall because he lusted after the fruit before he ate it. But they know that God didn't create evil. So, as R.C. Sproul is noted for asking, whence comes evil? As a short and logical reason for free will in Adam, it is obvious that what Adam did involved self-determination. That Adam's sin can be taken as an axiom. We got it right in the first pages of the Bible. But was it caused by another? Meaning it was determined. 
Was it uncaused, meaning it is undetermined, or was it caused by himself, meaning self-determined? We know that God did not cause him to sin, and the serpent did not force him to sin, so it was not determined. As far as Adam himself, there is no lack in him concerning the matter at hand. What he possessed in himself as created by God was perfect. Though he did not possess the knowledge of good and evil, that is not an imperfection. A lack does not necessarily correlate to or imply imperfection. Adam was given a command which he could obey. He simply did not. As there is no such thing as an uncaused action, we've gotten rid of the first two. The action was not undetermined. The answer to whence comes evil is that it was self-determined by Adam. For our views on predestination and election, the correct view is sub-lapsarianism. Sub meaning under or, more specifically, after. In order of decrees, God's order to provide salvation came before his order to elect the people of the world. As the Bible reveals in Revelation 13, verse 8, where it calls Jesus the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, I will send my son to die, and then all who call on him will be saved. It provides unlimited atonement for everyone, potentially, potentially, but not for everyone, actually. Only God's people who actually choose Christ will be saved. Thus, it is unlimited atonement potential, limited atonement actual. Like the previous two views, this view holds that God created all and then permitted the fall of man before election. He provides salvation for all people, but the elect of God are those who believe. God passes by those who do not believe based on their rejecting his offer of Jesus. It isn't that he doesn't care about them. It is that they don't care about him. This view applies salvation only to believers who cannot lose it because God's decrees are unconditional. This is in accord with scripture, which reveals that there is security, eternal security in the arms of Jesus Christ. A theological basis for this view is that God is omnibenevolent. In other words, he loves all of the people of the world because he is love, as the Bible states. There is no hatred of that person willing to come to him and no active passing by of people. He offers to any and to all who hear the message and the elect respond. I'd like to stop right there and I say, those who hear the message. Some people never hear the message and that is why we send out missionaries. Because if we don't get that message out there in the same boat as all of the people of human history who have not heard the message, it is our responsibility and our duty to fund people to go overseas. And in this teeny little church, we've got all kinds of missionaries that we have around the world that are doing their best to get this message out. We've got Ray and Jess Willett, young people with two very, three very young children in the forests of Papua New Guinea because they love the message of Jesus Christ that much. All right. He desires all to come for him for his unmerited salvation and favor. This doesn't mean that there is any good in us. It means that we see the good in him and we come to it, just as the Bible states. Christ is the light drawing all men unto himself. For a final and correct visit to the Garden of Eden, God creates the garden in the man. The man disobeys God and the catastrophe of sin enters into the realm. God at this time reveals that he will provide salvation for man before, before he elects anyone to that salvation. This is the order which is revealed in the Genesis 3 account. Man fell. 
God's curse came, but even during the curse, he promises a redeemer. After that, Adam demonstrates faith in the promise by naming his wife Chava, or life. And because of that act, God covers the man and the woman with the skins of an animal, a picture of man's atonement. The pattern continues outside of the garden for those in the stream of existence, one generation leading to the next. The stream leads away from the garden to the abyss of hell and complete and total separation from God. It is true. Jesus said it in John 3:18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God, however, offers the corrective measure for man. He first promises a redeemer, and those who believe are rewarded for their faith, such as Abraham. Eventually, he sends his son to die for sin. The son calls out, come to me and be saved. Some respond and come to him. Others like the existence that they are living, and they have no care about what, where their end will be, or they simply reject him out of disbelief, or... They are never told the message because a bunch of Calvinists who say that God's plans and salvation cannot be thwarted, and so it isn't necessary to share the gospel for people to be saved, fail to get out and share the message of Christ, or for whatever other reason, the word doesn't get out. For those who come to his son, they move from condemnation to salvation. They move from hell to heaven. They move from mortality to immortality. They are further protected from themselves by Christ even if they fail him along the way. They are clothed in Christ. They are no longer imputed sin. Get this point here. They're not being imputed sin, 2 Corinthians 5.19, and therefore they cannot die again because the wages of sin is death. But death comes through sin. If sin is not imputed, death no longer reigns. And as a witness to them that this is true, God's word says that they are sealed with a guarantee. Not a crummy Wesleyan Arminian guarantee that doesn't amount to a hill of beans, but the guarantee of God in Jesus Christ. God was pleased that they believed. He saved them, and he continues to save them, even if they may have forgotten it. Peter even says that that can happen in 2 Peter 1, verse 9. A person can go so far away from God that he can forget that he was ever saved, but God never does. God's redeemed are eternally secure because of what he has done not because of what we do or maybe what we fail to do. God even gives us examples of people who either commit such grievous sin that what they do is worse than anything Paul could describe among the Gentile nations, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or who completely shipwreck their faith, and yet Paul uses terminology saying that they are saved and they will remain saved yet as through fire, meaning they will suffer great loss at their judgment. Concerning predestination and election, the first two views hold to salvation only for the elect. The third view holds to salvation for believers, but they can lose it. The correct view holds to salvation for believers who are the elect, even though it is offered to all, and when that is accepted, it is a done deal. The salvation cannot be lost. This will be the subject of our next sermon, entitled, Once Saved, Always Saved, or Not So. There is ample biblical support for salvation being offered, free will in the process, and also of eternal salvation. We've covered all of those already. Any verses which appear to contradict these views are taken out of context by the theologically confused Christian. John 6.44, for example, is a boilerplate verse used by Calvinists to deny that no one can come to Christ through free will. 
it says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. See, you have no free will to come to Christ. See, wrong. The problem with using this verse for saying that one does not have free will in salvation is at least twofold. First, it rejects the context of what Jesus relayed to the people. His words were based on the argument he had begun to build all the way back in chapter 5. There he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. God had drawn them through his word for about 1,500 years. However, they were unwilling to accept the word and failed to come to Jesus Christ. When Jesus said that no one can come to him unless the Father sent Christ draws him, that is true. Nobody can come to Christ apart from the word of God. Paul says as much in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul goes on to show in the next four verses that God did, in fact, draw them, and he continues to do so today. The problem is not the drawing by God. The problem is the rejection by the people. This is without any doubt at all, because secondly, John 12, 32, does John 12 come before or after John 6? Comes after. John 12, 32, which comes after John 6, says the following, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. God draws all men to himself through his word, and it is his word which tells of the cross of Christ, by which Christ will draw all people to himself, and thus all people to God. Likewise, this goes for John 15, where Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Newsflash, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. The entire chapter deals solely and only with them. He said the same to them back in John 6:70. He chose them. Such verses cannot be used to justify God electing people apart from their free will. Predestination is what God has done for the people of the world by sending Jesus Christ. When they receive that, they are a part of God's predestination. Election is God's calling in Christ. This comes about when one hears the message of God's salvation and responds to the call. When this occurs, the man is justified. And when that occurs, the man is glorified because God's decrees are unconditional. In God's mind, these are eternal decrees which came about through his will being expressed in the temporal sequence of time. Our response to them results in an action which is not conditional, but which is fixed and forever. I'd like to stop and remind you that we went through this in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 26, where God says that he will do this and that to Israel if they do not listen. But he also said he would never reject them and he would draw them back to himself. God will never lie to Israel because they are a template for what God is doing for the human in Christ. He will never lie to us. He will never reject Israel. He will never reject you. And I've said it before. He says he's going to plant them in his land at the end of Amos, and they will never be uprooted again. If that is untrue, throw away your Bible and go out and party because nothing matters anymore. God will not lie when he says that he has saved you. He will not do that. To further solidify this, we will spend next week looking at the doctrine of eternal salvation as a separate doctrine. 
But you can see from what has been submitted today, they are only separate in our minds, not in God's. This is something that will be confirmed in our closing verse. As I said at the beginning of this sermon, we could go on and on for hours, and yet someone will find a reason why I should have also addressed this particular precept or that particular verse. There's no end to the learning that can be done. What matters concerning this sermon is not the content which has not been provided, but that which has been. And that which you have been provided is accurate, it is logical, and it is in accord with the Word of God. Please be sure to now take this information and use it as a basis for going forward and analyzing the countless other precepts which this short sermon did not include due to its time limitations. Now, I said during the Bible study on Thursday that I would be doing a particular verse in this sermon, and I had no idea how many years, 15, 20 years ago, when I started writing Bible commentaries, and I do one one verse at a time, day after day, that that verse that is in today's sermon would also be the subject of today's Bible commentary. And so you're going to have to sit here for another 10 minutes and listen to 2 Peter 3 verse 9, which was included in our sermon and I published it this morning. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In the previous verse, this is now my commentary on 2 Peter 3, 9. In the previous verse, Peter, refuting the scoffers, noted that to the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. That was provided to show that the Lord is not slack, as Peter says. The word here is braduno. It signifies to loiter or to be unduly slow. There is the sense of being late in regard to an appointment. Peter is saying that this is not the case with the Lord. Rather, he has appointed time for all things, and he will meet those appointments perfectly. This includes the timing concerning his promise, as Peter says. That is speaking of the return of Christ, which Peter said the scoffers bring up as a way of mocking his truthfulness. In verse 3, 4, he cited them as saying, where is the promise of his coming? But Peter shows that the promise has been made and that even if it seems like an inordinate amount of time has gone by and that the Lord is tardy to his appointment, this is not the case, especially as some count slackness, Peter's words. In the previous verse, it was noted that we as humans look at time and the events in time from our own personal perspective. We all do it, every one of us. We just look at what's going on in the world and we say, this is it, okay? This is why there have been prognosticators in every generation who have claimed that the Lord was coming during their own lifetime. When it doesn't come about, there is the accusation that the Lord is unnecessarily tarrying or that he is actually slack. These scoffers then use that as a pretext to deny the truth of Scripture. But what they be believe is a delay which allows them to sin and to live in lives of sin is actually a delay which has come about for their own possible good. It is the Lord's way of showing mercy even on them. As Peter says, the Lord is long-suffering toward us. This is one of the main attributes of the Lord. In Exodus, Moses asked to see the Lord's glory. When the Lord passed before him, he made a proclamation concerning himself to explain his very nature. When he did, he said these words, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. The Lord is merciful, even to those who scoff at him. He is gracious in giving them time to consider their errant ways 
and he is long-suffering in his attitude toward them, not immediately giving them exactly what they deserve. He is also abounding in goodness and truth. He has made sure and reliable promises to his people, and he will fulfill them exactingly. Peter then precisely explains this by saying that the Lord is not willing that any should perish. Man is made in his image. The value of man is not in who he is. However, when in Adam, in Adam man is fallen and is already condemned. However, the Lord Jesus came to remedy that. He entered into the stream of human existence to specifically correct that defect in man, giving him a value which he was originally intended to possess. After his coming, he gave instruction to those who have come to him to continue teaching about him, even to the ends of the earth. Thank you, Ray and Jess Willett and all the other missionaries. If Christ came back immediately or after a short time, the world would not be fully evangelized. But when we set our priorities correctly, we will desire to have others come to him. And we will set our budgets, our actions, and our lives to the work in accord with that. All of this is because the Lord truly desires that all should come to repentance. These words are specifically spoken concerning even the scoffers. To repent simply means to change one's mind. One cannot repent about Jesus if he has never heard of Jesus Christ. However, scoffers have obviously heard of the Lord. They have heard of his promised return and they have scoffed at it. This indicates that they are not saved and that they therefore need to repent or change their minds about who Jesus is and about the state of their relationship with him. The words of this verse, as many as any others in scripture, show definitively and without any ambiguity that the doctrine of free will is correct. It utterly refutes the Calvinistic concept of the Lord first regenerating a person to believe, who then believes and is born again, and who then chooses Christ and is saved. If this was so, then what Peter says here would also indicate that God has failed. If he desires that none should perish, but that people do in fact perish, then God is the one who failed to regenerate the people that he desired to not perish. Rather, man has been given free will, and man must come to his own conclusion about the Lord calling out to him for salvation. I have a life application for you from that verse. Peter reveals here what he has been leading up to for the past eight verses. Those who laugh at or argue against the Lord's return because of the many intervening years have failed to understand the reason for the delay. It is for our personal benefit that the Lord is waiting and for the sake of all who will be a part of his heavenly temple. As he says in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. The Lord is building a holy temple and is using the saved of the ages as living stones from it. What we may perceive as slackness is the Lord's long-suffering. As wickedness abounds in the world, he is holding out his hands to those who would call out to his name. He is doing it as a master architect. No builder would start a project without considering the materials needed to complete it. God knows the exact number of souls that it will take to build his temple. And when the last person who is needed to finish the next phase of that project calls on Jesus, then the next event in his time schedule will come to pass. 
The Lord is not willing that any should perish in the process, but that all will call on him. Those who actually do will receive their reward. Those who fail to do so will be condemned. The process is completely just, and it is perfect in its scope and in its execution. What a great God. And I end with a prayer. Oh God, how precious it is to be one of the elect, a living stone in your glorious temple. Thank you for having been patient and long-suffering, and that those who have called on Jesus have been given the chance to do so. Charlie Garrett, one time in his life, was given that chance. Now please give us patience as we watch you work in others' lives, bringing them to the same state of salvation which we now stand in. To your praise alone, amen. I have a closing verse for you from Ephesians 1. It is 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. His decrees are immutable, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. If you've never called on Jesus Christ, I know this was a complicated sermon and it's not an evangelistic effort today, but it should at least alert you to the need to call on Jesus and to be saved. You are not going to be regenerated apart from your asking Christ to save you. God sent his son. He's done all of the work necessary and he is not going to make a second move. He is waiting for you. It is your turn to call on Jesus and to just say, I've sinned. He's not asking you to do anything else than that. Christ Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he was resurrected. That's the gospel. You're acknowledging you've sinned. And from there, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Please do it today. Just yield yourself to the Lord. Acknowledge your sin and call on him and he will save you and you will be saved forever. And then go do great things for God in Jesus Christ because he's equipped you to so do it. Okay, I've got a question for you. I almost had the Maserati stolen today. Somebody was out trying to take it for a ride, but if you get a Maserati, if you can answer this. Our sermon text, not our text verse, our sermon text today was from Exodus and spoke of Pharaoh. In Exodus, God says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Two-part question. Is that active or passive? And justify your answer. It is passive. Why? Okay, that's true. He was created that way. I'm looking for something more specific. How did he passively make Pharaoh's heart hardened? It's true. What? He rejected God. But how? What is what is it that led him to that? His makeup. That's what he said. And I'm going to give you guys a Maserati for that, but I'm going to give you the answer specifically. It's because the first miracle that he did was what? Repeated by Pharaoh's people. And so Pharaoh said, he's not that great of a guy. He's not that, you know, this God isn't that great. And then the second miracle, what happened? They repeated his miracle and he got harder in his heart. God is passively hardening him. He's not actively hardening him. And then the third miracle, he says, I'm going to do this. And he does it. And Pharaoh's people do it again. And he's getting harder. He's saying, this isn't a great God at all. 
And then the fourth miracle, they say, man, this is the finger of God, but he's already hardened. And he kept doing things a little bit at a time, just a little bit at a time, just picking at him. He passively hardened a man who was created, as these two gentlemen said, already with a propensity for being hardened. That's how he did it. It was passive. It was not active. And when a Calvinist uses those verses in that logic, they have not thought through the Exodus account. We went through all of that in detail, and God uses two words when he talks about hardening. And you have to go through every single verse, word by word, to understand what God is doing. But when you see it, you understand. So there you go. That's your Maserati for the day. He sent his army after them because he was hard again. And what happened? They were all swallowed up. It was their own fault.